Rippy, and with me today is Aurora, our producer. Hi. And we have episode 21 for you. It's been a while. Sorry, we got caught up in a kitchen renovation here in the house. And of course, things did not go as smoothly as planned. We've been two weeks now without running water in the kitchen or a sink. We got the dishwasher temporarily, temporarily hooked up and it doesn't wiggle out the floor, uh, off the floor, out of the kitchen when we run it. So I suppose that's the good news, right, Aurora? Yeah, yeah, that's good news. Um, and you may not know, I, some of you might, Aurora is my eldest daughter. So this is a family operation we're running here. So I don't want to keep that a secret. So she's not a high-paid employee yet. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not talk about it. I'm always owing her money. Uh. All right. So today's guest for episode 21 is Brianna Cooper. And Aurora, please tell us about Brianna. Sure. Brianna Cooper enjoys living in the woods of Washington State and sharing the truth about Lyme and co-infection epidemic. She's the moderator of Lyme Memes for Education, a place to share pictures and information related to teaching and learning more about chronic Lyme disease. So she's on Pinterest, which is kind of interesting. She creates these posters and then pins them on Pinterest. She's got more than a hundred of them and they have little sayings like her last one was, what was it, Aurora? She says, I'm not sick because I'm depressed, but it is depressing to be this sick. So memes are really, I guess it's more my generation, but memes are a really cool, concise way to share information and people's stories. So I think it's really cool that she's doing this. Yeah. Brianna is a young woman. And her life, she was headed to be a medical doctor and her life got derailed by Lyme. She has really quite the amazing story. Um, she's also on Facebook and we'll have all this information in the show notes section at LimeNinjaRadio.com. All right. Here's our interview with Brianna Cooper. So Brianna, tell me about yourself, not as a Lyme disease patient, but as a human being. Like what's, where'd you grow up? I grew up here in Washington State. I'm 24, so I'm I'm pretty young. <laughs> um, I avidly love the outdoors. Um, let's see. I live in the middle of the woods here in Washington, and that's how I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I like being pretty far out. Um, I live on the same property as my mom. I have a partner who's an Afghan veteran, both of which are also Lyme positive. Really? And we really, yes. Um, we both, all, all of us really like living out in the boonies. Uh-huh. <laughs> we love our dog. His name is Bear. He's a big black lab, but he's not black. He has a weird genetic trait that makes him brindle colored. So what color is brindle? Brindle is a mix of blonde, brown, and really dark brown. So I'm fascinated by this. So is it like patchy or is all the hairs like blended together? So it's this weird... All blended together. Wow. Must be beautiful. Looks like he has very natural highlights and lowlights that people pay so much for at the salon. <laughs> He's been to... Had his doggy do, huh? Yes. 
He has a very stylish doggy do. <laughs> That's so great. So you've been in the woods. You grew up in the woods, yeah? Yes. Yes, I did. I was a scout all the way through, both Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts. Oh, nice. So um, I was always out at camp, always camping, always hiking. And I live in the woods, so I'm always home. That sounds idyllic. So then what we, happened? We love what, what were you doing before you got Lyme? Before I got Lyme is actually a really interesting question. I was most likely born with Lyme. Oh. Um, but before I was reinfected, or what we think was a reinfection in 2004, I was in school. Mm-hmm. Um, I had struggled in school. I was labeled as learning disabled. I worked really hard to stay in school and make good grades, but I was a really good student. And I loved being a good student. Mm-hmm. I loved school. I um, I just really, really liked to learn. My interest has always been biology, biochemistry, ecology. So that's what I was really focused on um, before I started getting really sick. So then what happened? I was reinfected in 2004 on the Illinois-Wisconsin border on a Girl Scout trip. Uh, did you know you um, got bit- I Yes, I did know that I was bitten, but I did not know what to do or how to properly remove a tick. I grew up in Washington State where tick knowledge is not common knowledge at all. I had never even seen a tick or even heard about them. I was in the shower on my Girl Scout trip and pulled a tick out of my leg and washed it down the drain. Nice. Even after I got sick, the day after and the day after that, I had really high fevers. It never occurred to me that it had made me sick. I had just been on a plane. I figured, you know, lots of germy people all with recycled air. Of course. of course. I figured I had gotten sick from the plane. Yeah. So no rash. No rash. Yeah. And when you say a high fever, how high? 102.3. Okay. I remember. Because that's the highest temperature I had ever had. It was unusual. Yeah, that's a serious fever. And how long were you was, sick for? I had a fever for two days, but I was on a Girl Scout trip. I missed activities the first day. The second day, I partially participated and went to meals. But I was an unaccompanied minor on a Girl Scout trip all the way across the country. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I could stay in bed. Right. Huh. And then did you start feeling a little bit better? What, did they send you to a doctor? What happened? The fever broke, and I went home two weeks later. A couple of months afterwards, I started developing a tremor in my right arm. And that's when we started all of our medical investigations and started the chronic illness cycle of getting a little bit better, getting worse, getting less better, getting way worse, going to doctor after doctor after doctor. We came up with a lot of different diagnoses before we finally got to Lyme and co-infections. Yeah, so why don't we run down? I think it's helpful for people to know and feel a part of the the, the club of the ignored, so to speak. Uh, yes. And, and so what diagnosis did were you given? 
Um, I wrote a partial list, so I can read them off, and then I'll see if I can come up with any others. Okay, great. Especially in childhood, um, I had very severe joint pain. Okay, so this and, is this um, is before the the trip. Before the I was reinfected. Okay, so even yeah. when you were little, you had joint pain. Yes, I did, and okay. that's probably because I was born with Lyme. Yeah. We'll My get, mom is we'll also get, Lyme positive. Uh, okay. Well, let's. Uh, I was going to say we'll get back to that, but let's put that. Let's put the okay. list on pause. And so, what? When did your mom find out that she was positive after you became positive? After me, she just found out yesterday. We just got her blood work back. No kidding. And so, as no she kidding? looks back on her life, does it all of a sudden begin to make some sense that yeah, I've been infected for a very long time? It does start to make some sense. Yes, it definitely, the pieces start to fit together. And really, she's gone to doctors for a couple of different complaints where they're just like, oh, that's just a cork. Right. You just have neuropathy in your hands and feet sometimes. Yeah. Right, everybody you does. Know. You slept funny, right? Or, right, Yeah. exactly. A lot of dismissal. Yeah. Incredible. Okay, let's pull back up the list. Okay. <laughs> Um, these are in no particular order. Okay. Growing pains. What? Conversion disorder. What is that? Conversion disorder? Yeah. That's Conversion a- disorder is a very highly contentious psychological diagnosis that cannot <laughs> be proven. Of course. That's why I've never heard of it. Conversion disorder. Okay. I wrote that one down. I have to Google that okay. after we're done. And it will, I am sure occur again in our talks because it definitely had a huge effect on my medical treatment and even my medical treatment now. Um, I had really terrible recurrent ear infections and very narrow ear tubes at the time were said to be congenital Mm -hmm. but are actually known to be from congenital Lyme. Oh, isn't that fascinating? Idiopathic. You're going to teach me a lot today. So, so back up with the conversion disorder for a second. Was that given to you by okay. a psychiatrist or psychologist, or was that by a uh, a medical doctor? A neurologist. A neurologist. But I had seen for less than ten minutes. Yeah, brilliant. That's you know that's one of the things that really tees me off is you get mm-hmm. instead of just saying you know what I'm not sure they're going to make a diagnosis outside their specialty because of course they know everything. I'm a neurologist. I went to school exactly. for a hundred years, so I know everything. What a load! It of was a really, it was a really terrible experience. Yeah, like, no kidding. I was traumatized by it. I was hospitalized under that diagnosis for how long? From January, uh, from November sixteenth to January ninth, two thousand eight. Wow. To two thousand nine. Wow. Brutal. It was a very long, very damaging three months. Yeah, and how old were you when you were in the hospital? I was 18 when I entered, and I left on my 19th birthday. Yeah, nice. And, th- you know, you could just multiply those years by, or those months by three when you're that age. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's, those are critical years. I mean, you're 18. Give me a break. You're in the hospital for Lyme yes. Nice. And we didn't even know I had Lyme then, right. which is why I got my misdiagnosis. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> Idiopathic muscle atrophy. Yeah. Bladder infections with kidney reflux and malformed ureters. Okay. Shoulder girdle dysfunction, mm-hmm. snapping scapula syndrome. 
complex regional pain syndrome, idiopathic benign bone growth, stroke, two times, Arnold Chiari malformation type 1, which is a brain malformation. I was going to say, wait, back up again, say that again slowly. Arnold Chiari malformation type 1. Okay. That's another new one, but we'll just pass over that one. Okay. It just means that your cerebellum is sticking out of the back of your head where your spinal cord should be. Uh, and did they see that in an MRI or is that another made-up diagnosis? That is actually confirmed by four MRIs that show a progression. But Lyme attacks tendons and ligaments. Mm-hmm. And actually what happens is the tendons and ligaments that hold your head to your neck start to weaken. Yeah. And then your brain starts to go through the back of your head. And that's really what was going on. I wasn't born with a Chiari malformation, as is usually necessary for an Arnold Chiari malformation diagnosis. Uh, Mine was acquired. <laughs> no, I wouldn't say acquired. How about given to you? Yes. <laughs> okay. Asthma. Yeah. Panic attacks. Cluster headaches. Ocular migraines. Idiopathic sudden vision change. Retinal migraines. Convergence insufficiency, idiopathic okay. breaks. Convergence insufficiency is that a visual thing? Yes, it is. It means that your eyes don't make one image. Okay. Our eyes naturally see two images. Yep, and we make them into one. Yeah, the brain in our brain. Yeah, and my neurology could no longer do that. Oh, so how many did you see? Two or more? Two. Two. Two of everything. Yep. Okay. Um. Retinal migraines, convergence insufficiency, idiopathic amnuria, infertility, neurogenic and hemorrhagic ovarian cysts, idiopathic vulvar pain, pelvic pain disorder, the list can, can go on and on. Um, my biggest misdiagnosis is in the psychological realm of the disorders. Of course, those were not diagnosed by a psychologist, as we talked about. Yeah. So, and I got a lot of diagnoses that are, it's stress. Of course. You're too stressed. Right. Stress, stress is a funny one, you know, because stress absolutely contributes to things, but absolutely. as an absolute cause, it's rarely by itself. I agree. And I think if it is by itself, then what about the stress is so toxic to your body? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's... It's in, well, it's inflammatory in nature. So again, it's one more thing. But the, the other, right. so I, this is a funny little story. Uh, back when I was starting out in my practice, I used to ask people the question, so how's, how's the stress in your life? And everybody would answer, fine. I don't have very much stress. Right. So then you start talking to them about, okay, so how's your life? Well, my daughter's, uh, got pregnant. She's 14 years old and my son is just getting out of jail and I'm having to put my, uh, parents into a nursing home. And I said, wait a minute, right. I you didn't have any stress. And they say, oh, but I think I'm dealing with it pretty well. So that's the other funny thing about you know, stress is that we, we don't, we don't recognize it. It's kind of the slow boil, the frog in the, in the pot. Yeah, doesn't recognize that the water is getting hotter. So that happens. And then again, it's, there needs to be a fault that the stress puts stress on that, that breaks in and of itself. We're usually, we're pretty resilient people. Very much so. I think so. So yeah. So this, the stress diagnoses are 
not helpful, I don't think. I don't think so either. I think oftentimes when people are stressed, conditions that are already present mm-hmm. or are being dealt with efficiently yeah. start to dysregulate, and that becomes an issue. So yes, they are stressed. Anyone who's ever been chronically ill will tell you that it's incredibly stressful. Yeah. But it exacerbates what's already happening in their body. Absolutely. And I think that happens for the majority of people. And do you feel like Lyme is that sort of thing too? Because that's what I hear. That's what I hear. That Lyme is like a stressor and whatever kind of abnormality that you've either acquired or, or mm-hmm. been born with, it kind of pushes those to the forefront. Has that been your experience? I do think that Lyme can do that. I do think Lyme can push issues that haven't been issues in the past to the forefront and definitely make them much worse. I do think that Lyme can generate some symptoms of its own mm-hmm. based on a general weakening of your overall system, which then things eventually start to degrade. And I think that does happen, especially with people who have not been treated or undertreated for their Lyme. Brilliantly said. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, so there's that that part of it as well. No doubt that the, the bacteria, either with chemically or, or physical burrowing into who knows what exactly they're doing, do cause, just right. cause damage, man. And they just go after. It's, it is interesting to me that for some people, it seems to go in one direction or another, or at least from time to time. So for a while, it'll be more of a neurological pain type of thing. And then it can mm-hmm. move over to either more orthopedic type pain you know, or psychological or digestive or, and, and then all of the above. But it's fascinates me that the, uh, they tend to have, what do I want to say here? That the Lyme tends to have a personality and each person, you know, the Lyme in each individual, it tends to have its own personality. Absolutely. And I really think that there are connections that will be made in the future. I am Lyme paralyzed. I'm right side hemiplegic. I have no movement in my right side. And I have met many other people who are Lyme paralyzed. And every single one of us is probably a congenital Lyme patient who was reinfected before or during puberty. I have never met anyone else who's been paralyzed from Lyme who does not meet those, both those criteria. So I think in the future, we will have patterning that we can predict how Lyme and co-infections will affect people who are infected. That's some deep thinking on your part. So what else do you think in that area, these patterns that you've been seeing? I think a lot of people who are bitten in their 20s miss out on building a lot of the life skills and financial resources to deal with Lyme. And so they do see a increase in mental health effects which I think partly is due to the stress of the situation. Mm-hmm. Obviously being sick and young without resources, trying to you know, get training and a job and a house and a life are all stressful events, but it's very stressful to be sick and not be able to do those things. And I think that can contribute greatly to the psychological factors that Lyme is known for. Lyme causes horrible depression, possibly mania, suicidal thoughts or tendencies, even homicidal thoughts or tendencies. It's pretty well documented that Lyme can change the way people think, but I think it is most commonly changing the way people think when they're in their 20s or young 30s. 
So I haven't met anyone. Affect, yeah, how do you think it affected you? Psychologically yeah. or overall? Like overall, just life. It affected me greatly. Um, I developed epilepsy. I developed a tremor in my arm and my leg that eventually became paralyzed. Um, I I wasn't able to think the same way. I wanted to be able to think and learn the way that I used to, and I couldn't. It permanently changed my vision three times, both, all three said non-set. Um, I currently wear prism glasses to see one image that had 18 diopters of prism in them, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. But at my most, I've had 27 diopters of difference. Oh, my goodness. So it is improving. Um it has definitely affected my speech. I am doing a lot better now than I was. I developed a stutter. I developed aphasia where all of a sudden I would be thinking of a word and then poof, it was just gone. I went to say it and I couldn't come up with the word, right. which is a really frustrating feeling. <laughs> yes, most people I think mostly, blame, blame that on age. But I'm young, so they couldn't blame it on that. <laughs> I think it. mostly it affected me neurologically. Yeah, it's really sad. Do you think it's your uh, – this is probably an unfair question, and maybe it doesn't have an answer. Do you think it's it's in your brain, or do you think it's yes. all throughout the nervous system? I think it is disseminated throughout the nervous system, but I do believe that my disability and my paralysis mm-hmm. originate from – anaplasmosis yeah. of the brain. Okay. I am very strongly positive for anaplasma, which is a co-infection of Lyme. Yep. And it isn't really that well known. It, we don't know that much about it yet. But we do know that my numbers are very high, and when my numbers are very high, so are the neuroinflammation markers. Okay. And so I really believe, given the events around my paralysis, that there is an injury or some type of blockage to the nervous system from the motor cortex of my brain. And do you see, do you think there's a recovery path for you or is it, what do you believe? Previously I would have said no, but I just changed my living arrangement after finding out that my house had mold. Ah. And I have seen improvement. It is not, Massive, but it is really encouraging. My seizures have gone from two to three times a week to having two since October. Well, that's a massive improvement. That's a massive improvement. And while I don't have movement or, you know, sensation in my right side that we're really hoping for, the lack of seizure activity is incredible. It's a game changer. And I really think a clean, really, really clean, chemical-free environment makes a huge difference for people with Lyme. It made a huge difference for me. I never would have believed that there was any type of recovery possible mm-hmm. until I started making that change. Why do you think that happens with Lyme patients? It's like, what is it that makes that, that multiplies? Because, I mean, everybody can be bothered by mold. You don't have to have Lyme disease about it. Right. And so you can be crippled by mold as well. But, you know, most people just have minor symptoms. So what do you think is it about a Lyme? Uh, infection that makes the mold so harmful, so very toxic? 
That's a great question. I think part of it is the OSPA marker on Lyme. Mm-hmm. Lyme carries one OSPA marker. HIV carries three. You see similar immunosuppressive and degradatory effects on the system. It just doesn't regulate the same way it used to. So when an assault happens, your body cannot respond to it as it normally would. It's under enough stress that its response is, in effect, crippled. Your response while under attack to another attack is subsequently diminished. Lyme is unique in a way because it reactivates other infections, including herpes. Herpes infections that cause cold sores or um, canker sores, which normally don't cause a problem. But when we are inundated with co-infections, with Lyme and the damage and the byproducts of all of those, any other stressor added to the top can be the straw that breaks the camel's back, metaphorically. But I really do think that mold in particular does that because it clogs the same detoxification pathways as Lyme. So how careful you how careful are you with mold? Because mold is in our food supply as well. Absolutely. And interestingly, I only react so far that we know of to molds that are black molds, mm-hmm. particularly aspergillus mold and penicillium mold, both of which are used in the manufacture of some foods, including synthetic vitamin C. I react to those foods, but other typically high mold foods I don't react to, such as chocolate. Do you drink coffee? I don't. I don't do any caffeine besides that that naturally occurs in chocolate chocolate. and very small (laughs) uh, levels in tea, but nothing that has added caffeine or is strongly caffeinated. So what are you doing these days to treat yourself other than getting yourself out of a moldy house and getting all these chemicals out of your life? That's a great question. Um, I actually have a lot of stuff that I'm doing. Um, I have supplemental oxygen therapy, two hours a day, 10 liters per minute. I do a sauna every day. What type Um, of sauna? Far infrared sauna. Far infrared, okay. Um, magnesium chloride bath. Uh, why magnesium chloride? I am CBS gene mutation positive, uh-huh. which means that I don't deal with sulfur very well. My body doesn't detox it out. And magnesium sulfate produces loose sulfur ions, which can cause increased fatigue in people who have a CBS mutation. So when did you find that out? Um, my genetic information came in less than a year ago. We went through 23andMe and then ran it through Genetic Genie Online. Oh, very good. And it just printed it all out for me, all color-coded. <laughs> I was impressed with the color-coding. Yeah. I took genetics, and it's hard to figure it all out. So it is, isn't it? I was really glad that they had a little user-friendly like coloring. This, right. Warning, this is a problem. I'm a medical cannabis patient, um, and that has probably been the biggest lifesaver for me. I know a lot of people worry about cannabis's ability to suppress the immune system. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually think that that is a false assumption. Originally, I was terrified of cannabis 
I, I really, I really was. When my doctor suggested it, I was like, I'm a kid who went through D.A.R.E. Don't you know that kills brain cells? You know, I was terrified. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, is that cannabis actually causes neurogenesis in the brain. We know that now. We also know that cannabis does not cause cancer in the lungs, even when used heavily inhaled. And once I saw the research, I was much more calm and much more willing to listen. Yeah. So are I you do, using, are you inhaling? Um, I use vaporized cannabis, okay, not great. smoked. So yeah. there's no smoke. Right. There's topical applications okay. and then ingested. Uh-huh. And then um, we also juice the raw leaves. High CBD strains of cannabis work really well juiced. They're non-psychoactive and they really reduce inflammation. Cool. So what, the, uh, what, cranials, what, what, do you, what do you notice as the big change with the cannabis? With the cannabis, it's my speech. Uh-huh. I'm fully medicated right now. And I would never be able to talk this way without it. So my ability you, to think and write and read and communicate accurately and clearly mm-hmm. is absolutely dependent on my, my medication level. So what do you sound like when you like first thing in the morning? Um, usually we'll have a lot more of the aphasia. We'll have a lot of words missing from my speech. We'll have the word salad symptoms where you come out with a random word instead of the one that you thought you were saying. Uh-huh. Um, we see a lot less of the tremoring. Obviously, a huge decrease in seizures, um, but mostly what I notice most physically is the way I feel. I feel a lot less tense muscle-wise, which would make sense psychoactively, but I'm not typically using psychoactive medication. It's the lowered inflammation that really helps my body move and have good sensation, and that's really important for someone who's paralyzed. Yeah. They have to work really hard to make sure that my skin integrity stays good yeah. and that you know everything's taken care of. And yeah. in, in Chinese medicine, cannabis is a wood, a liver. I'm going to get a little technical because in Chinese medicine, the liver is not the liver that like we think about it. It's, it has to do right. with eyesight and ligaments and all these other functions besides. You know, it's Absolutely. not that the Chinese didn't think of it as a filter. They thought it as this other, this other function in the body and cannabis calms that down. So in some ways it has similar effects to alcohol on the total system in that relaxation kind of phase. So they didn't, you know, they really didn't see a whole problem with it unless like anything else, if, if it, unless it's abused and then you could suppress right. the wood too much at that point, then you get the t- typical pothead behavior where there's no motivation, there's no, they just want to stay in bed and kind of look at the curtains. But that's, you know, that's extreme. So anyway, that's cool. Which which I find really unusual, because that's what I expected. I had this preconceived notion that it was going to make me loopy or like just, you know, lack of motivation, unable to get out of bed or off balance. And I actually found completely the opposite. Yeah. So. And I would, I would say that that's because you're not starting at a normal state. You're starting at a completely imbalanced state. So this actually calms you down, calms your nervous system down to the point where you're functional again. You know, and right now you you sound great. It's like you should be in front of a class teaching people. You know, you're brilliant. Thank you. You're welcome. But the speech has been very hard won, and the cannabis is a huge part of that. I've had to work really hard to find the pattern 
of what makes my speech okay at one time and not at another. Right. That's the maddening thing about Lyme, isn't it? There's nothing. Well, day to day, it's a whole nother yes. adventure, right? Wake up and what's going on today? You never quite know what to expect. Nope. Which I have to say is the hardest part for me. It, you know, that seems to be one of the hardest things that everybody deals with. We're we're not mentally set up with, or or genetically, or or evolutionary, how you want to put it, how we're put together. We were not set up to deal with something new every day. We like routines. We understand routines. It's like don't touch exactly. the spider with the red spot on the back. It's going to kill you. That we understand. But you know, if it's if it's a new spider every day, it, it, we don't like that. It just it doesn't fit in with how human beings are wired, or how we learn. Yes, brilliant, good point. Before that, before I was really sick, and before my hospitalization, I was a pre med student. I was a scientist by training. You know, I I really, really believed that if I took enough data, that I would find. The pattern, and eventually I did, mm-hmm. but I couldn't use my same methods that I had always used in the past. Right. And I think people with Lyme develop tons of strategies to figure out what's causing it, mm-hmm. or you know, even what's going on in the first place. Because so many people with Lyme don't know they have it; right. they have to find these strategies before they know what's wrong. Yep. Yeah, yeah. We need. I think with Lyme, you need fuzzier math. You need a little more of a fudge factor. Yes. Definitely. So Even in the blood work. Yep. Exactly. You have to have. Yes. Yeah. It's just, yes. That's. That's. You have to have a space for a human judgment in there as well. Well, it's so funny that Lyme is absolutely categorized as a clinical diagnosis, and for the most part, ninety-nine point nine percent of doctors refuse to use clinical signs and symptoms as a diagnosis, and they just go for that lousy test that tells nothing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's maddening. That, it's like, that was some, incredibly maddening. Yeah, at some point, this I think this happened uh, about the time you were born or maybe a little bit before, doctors started shifting and not trusting their old ways of doing medicine, so their observation right. skills, and started relying totally on numbers. And I, I'm not uh, enough of a historian, medical historian, to know exactly when that happened, but it definitely has shifted uh, over the past uh, 20 to 30 years. Absolutely. And physician intuition and intuitive healing are a huge part of a doctor's job because you're sorting through a huge amount of information about a person you don't know. That intuitive force is very important and being able to find what's actually going on with this person. It's so, important that doctors have that. Maybe you can go back to medical school and be that kind of doctor for us. Well, that would mean that I would have to improve quite a bit. <laughs> okay, let's do that. <laughs> I would love to improve quite a bit. We're, we're getting hopeful with good signs. Yeah. Okay, so um, cannabis. Back to the treatment. Yes. Um, cranial psychotherapy. I work with a great cranial psychotherapist who is an intuitive practitioner, mm-hmm. and that's been great. I work with a massage therapist. I have a severely modified diet. I developed um, IBS from Lyme, probably from Bartonella, yep. and it resulted in some really huge food allergies, but I also have an extremely modified diet to keep the Lyme in check, no refined sugar, 
um, no soy, gluten, cow dairy, citrus, no mint, um, no pineapple, no mango, no xanthan gum, which is in almost everything without gluten. Yep. Um, no black mold derived uh, citric acid. Um, you know, those are really only sound like a handful of things, but they're really almost in everything. So what do you? So eat? I stick to I stick to a largely paleo diet. Mm-hmm. Vegetables and meats work for me. Um, I can tolerate a few grains. I can tolerate wild rice. I can tolerate quinoa. Um, I can tolerate corn sometimes, which is always nice. Um, but mostly, mostly we're working with very low carbohydrates, high nutrient dense foods. Have you experimented with uh, high fat intake? I have. Um, I have a COMPT mutation mm-hmm. genetically. That means I don't digest fat very well. Ah. So I went downhill pretty fast when I started a ketogenic diet. At this time, we had not found the cannabis or the safe environment, and I was having seizures that were life-threatening, and we were trying to do anything that would help. And the ketogenic diet actually made it worse for me because I couldn't digest anything. I wasn't getting enough nutrition. Interesting. It's funny. It's just... So now we kind of have to balance the two. Yeah. Because I do well with a really high-fat diet. Right. A ketogenic diet for seizures has been used for you know hundreds of years. Well, I don't know hundreds, but at least a yeah. hundred years, and it's is is very well tolerated. So you're you've had some bad luck. So I, you know, I, I wonder how much of this is genetics, and I wonder how much of this is epigenetics. I really believe that it's epigenetics. Yeah, that that like the lime gets in there and starts messing with the DNA, and that. It's it like does it it flips the switch to protect itself. It's like a you know a thief going into a, a home and cutting the 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 alarm wires Wire and cutting the, the telephone right and making it a safe environment for itself. Exactly. That's crazy. Hmm. And I really believe that our bodies, as well as our DNA, the more we learn about epigenetics, the more we learn that epigenetics literally is the foundation of genetics. You are not what you inherit you or what you inherit and how it interacts with everything else. Yeah. Your environment is just as essential as your genetics. And the two interact in ways that we don't fully comprehend yet. Isn't that the truth? And it may be generational as well, correct? It's like it yes, m- it absolutely. It might be important to, you know, what your grandmother went through as well as your mother. Yep. I am also, I also have an MTHFR um, mutation which means that my mom also has it and that my grandmother also has it because my mom has copies from both sides. So both of them have at least one copy. And so what does that mutation you know, so mean? Our whole, an MTHFR mutation is most well known for its increased risk of cardiovascular complications and death, um, mostly related to how fat stick to the insides of your veins. It has to do with a clotting factor. But a lot of people are well-known with MTHFR, are getting well-acquainted with it because it also can affect what meds they take. Right. Whether they can have 
B12 or regular folate or stuff like that. And especially with Lyme, a lot of people are supplementing these things. So it's important to know if they can take regular folate or if they need L-methyl-5 folate that's already been reduced synthetically. Right. You know, I go back and forth with nutrition, uh, and I think this is one of the reasons. So what what happens with nutrition uh, studies is that they'll get a small study and there'll be some hopeful news. You know, vitamin E is good for heart disease or vitamin D is good for your immune system or something. And then they roll out the study over uh, a significantly large population. And all of a sudden, any benefit that was there disappears. And I'm convinced it's just because that we're not – machines coming off an assembly line that we are genetically diverse and that if you study enough people, the vitamin E is helping, you know, if you drill down into the data, the vitamin E is helping some people, but then it's harming others. And when you aggregate the data, you're left with, uh, does nothing, but it's not true. It's most likely either helping or harming. And in some cases, probably neutral. So, you know, the, the work that you're doing and getting the, the, diagnosis or whatever you want to call it, the, the genetic testing, the 23andMe, and finding mm-hmm. out exactly what's going on is a critical, critical piece because, you know, we want to be part of the crowd. We want to say, well, this worked for, you know, my brother with Lyme disease, so I really want it to work for me. And then right. when it doesn't, we get all upset. But just because some worked for somebody, it may not work for, for everybody or, or anybody else even. And I think a lot of people get that reinforced at the doctor's office. This works for my other patient. It should mm. be working for you. Mm. If it's not working for you, something else is wrong. Right. It's not Lyme. Or, it's not Lyme disease. What are you doing? Yeah. Are you not following my instructions? You know, and so people start turning on themselves when something doesn't work because they want it to work. Right. You must have they legitimately disorder. want to believe it's effective. You have conversion disorder. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> which is a ridiculous notion to begin with because conversion disorder is the idea that some traumatic thing in the past, most of the time, which you cannot remember, manifests its stress as a physical symptom. So there's no way to prove it. There's no way to disprove it. And one of the criteria for diagnosis is that you disagree with the diagnosis. (laughs) I was like, exactly was they supposed to win that one they couldn't uh, prove right. it they couldn't disprove it you're right but it's a really really mild case let me go <laughs> yeah we're just ridiculousness to an oh, extreme who, level who comes up with one of the stuff? other diagnostic criteria is the bottom of your feet burning yeah well i have neuropathy on the bottom of my feet yeah. from bartonella i was gonna say it sounds like bartonella symptoms Exactly. Every single one of those symptoms can be derived from an illness or infection. You know, I uh, for Halloween, I interviewed M.M. Dryman, and she has a book, and she's uh, she actually has several books, but one of her theses is that the Salem Witch Trial, that these women were actually Lyme disease infected. That would totally make sense. You know, I started, well, I came across it and said, that's a little bit out there, but it's Halloween. Let's have some fun. And as I listened to her, she made more and more sense. It was like, I was totally convinced. Especially because so many of them were drawn to water. Yeah. 
And, and People who have tick-borne infections are actually more likely to have an affinity towards water and places that, like near rivers or oceans or stuff like that because that's where they usually were bit. See, you're, you're, you were way smarter than I am. So one of the things she says is w- what also happened is there was a drought and so it drove mm-hmm. everything to the water, to the river area. So the population, not only of human beings, but of animals and rodents and everything else, was all concentrated. And so the, mm-hmm. the Lyme had a chance to spread, and they got infected. And then if you go back through the history of witches and and and, uh, and, and religious uh, persecution of witches, they, some of the descriptions that they have are, yeah, you're supposed to have a, a, a rash, and they call it the kiss of the devil. And, guess yeah. what? and when it's drawn, you look up in the books and they show it, it sure looks like a bullseye rash to me. Crazy. And – very interestingly, can cause the fits of rage that were characteristic of some of those children's behaviors. Yeah. A lot of women who were accused of being witches were around children that would have very violent rages and would screech. They thought that the children could sense it, but I, I bet you they have Lyme. As well, yeah. It would make so much sense. Yeah. I don't really think that the devil made them do it. <laughs> not those people anyway <laughs> no not those people alright well Brianna you've been very generous with your time and before you go I want to give you a chance to to add anything that you haven't up to this point I would really love to recommend a few books okay um, The Compendium of Tick-Borne Diseases by Kay Spreen S-P-R-E-E-N Okay. She's an osteopath who had Lyme and had a son nearly die from Lyme. Mm. And she has written a peer-reviewed medical textbook called A Compendium of Tick-Borne Diseases. And it's a great resource for anyone who has Lyme or anyone who has to convince a doctor that they have Lyme. Okay. Um, And Explaining Unexplained Illnesses by Martin L. Paul. He's an MD researcher at the University of Washington who has a theory about the interplay of genetics and infection and its ability to bring on multiple chemical sensitivity, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, post-traumatic stress, Gulf War syndrome, other similar inflammation-based diseases. And he has a ton of research, all peer-reviewed, great stuff. Cool. And that's actually how I got to the idea of moving into a safe environment that's caused such a big improvement. It's a great book. Nice. And that's it. That's all I can think of. Brilliant. You're absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure. I hope it really helps someone. You know, I think it will. Every little bit. You know, at some point, all the snowflakes add up and you got a snowstorm. So I I think every little ping we put out there, every little message, it it individually, maybe not, but definitely as a, what I want to say, as part of the the greater movement, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. So, of course, the thing that sticks with me about her interview is that she 
was actually using medical marijuana. And that's kind of interesting because it's been in the news a little bit and it's, there, there's so much stigma about it. So it's interesting to get somebody's perspective from a perspective from somebody who's actually used it. Yes, she's really crediting crediting it a lot with helping her brain function and getting words out. I love the phrase word salad that she used. I was sympathizing with her. That happens to me sometimes too. <laughs> Don't let me catch you smoking non-medical <laughs> marijuana in the house. Scouts honor. Okay, great. The other thing I wanted to mention is the as re-listening through the interview, I, it seems like it come down on both sides of the fence on stress causing uh, illness and problems. And I just want to clarify what I was trying to get across. So in the first part of the interview, we talk about using stress as an excuse to not make a diagnosis. And that's really separate from stress as a contributing factor to whatever diagnosis you have. In my practice, I would say very rarely is stress the main factor in an illness. However, it's also uh, common for it to be a secondary or worsening factor or tertiary, a third factor in, in causing problems. So stress is always there in the background, even happy events. I had one patient who threw her back out because she was overjoyed with the birth of her first grandchild. So we actually had to calm the stress of her joy down. So stress doesn't have to be a negative thing. But it's it's important not to just poo-poo whatever symptoms you have. Oh, it's just stress. Yeah. I think that's the point I was trying to make. It's an exacerbator. That's a big word, big college <laughs> word. Yes, it makes things worse. That's yeah. for sure. All right. If you have any feedback, send us an email. At feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. Please like us on Facebook. Just search and hit the like box. Yep. You can also visit our website for links and show notes. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. And Stitcher. For you Windows people. And check back with us next week. We have our interview with Andrea Caesar. It's a fascinating conversation. One more thing before we go. If you're on the show notes page on the website for this episode, look down beneath the picture of Brianna, and you'll see there a Facebook comment section. Please leave a comment there. Get a discussion going. I'd like to know what you think about the podcast and the interview with Brianna, particularly what do you think about medical marijuana. Let us know what you're thinking, and uh, I'll be sure to come by and uh, answer any posts. And before we leave, the most important part of the show, Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. Ninjas don't use a steering wheel to drive. The road forms where ninjas want to go. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.